0: Father, um, thank you so much for, uh, I don't know, I just, as I just listened to your people, your children singing, I just I just saw your face smiling. I know you just love that, God. Just It just pleases your heart to hear your kids remember you, acknowledge you. Um, <clears throat> and that's all we're here to do today. We're here to just give attention to what you have said. Um, And acknowledge, Lord, that what you have said is spirit and life. And so I know that there are people here today who in soul are parched, and they are like dry sponges. And I pray, Father, that you would pour the water of your spirit, your life, into anyone here who is like a little child who is ready to receive from their father. And those of us who may not have childlike faith, God, give us that, we pray. I thank you that you are a God of freedom. It is for freedom you have set us free. You are such a good king. You're so different than the kings and the rulers of this world that control their subjects. You give us freedom to love you, God, because of how you've loved us. Lord, just feed us. Lord, we all need to be fed from you. There is no other source of life. We just look to you. We love you. We acknowledge that you're here walking among your church. We bless you today. And we thank you that you've blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen. So. Recently we took a trip, my family and I, uh, down to Southern California and when we were driving back uh, we had some some car trouble. Um, We went to the Carl's Jr. line and we stopped in Bakersfield for the night. It was late at night and we went to get some burgers and uh, we stopped at the drive-through. We placed our order and we could not get the vehicle out of park. <laughs> so we had to call a tow truck, as you can see here on the screen. Um, and he could not even get it out of park. The, the, uh, the gentleman who came, he was, a, he was an amazing guy. Um, but he could not get it out of park. He, we tried everything. We tried to manually override it. We tried to pump the brakes just right. We tried to turn the car off and on. We tried all the obvious things. We checked the fuse box. I mean, you name it. And I know nothing about vehicles, but we tried everything we could think of. We were Googling. I mean, there were people coming up behind us like, what's going on up there? You know, <laughs> like we're stuck. We, we are stuck. And we were frustrated. <laughs> Late at night, my little guy's stuck in the back in his car seat. He's getting frustrated. Um, but as it turns out, what was wrong with our vehicle uh, was something that was was really hidden. It was below the surface. It was not obvious at all. Um, and I had come to find out, come to turn out, uh, not surprisingly, I did not know how to fix it. But more about that later. You can take the slide down if you want. Um, so last week, uh, Sam talked about the Colossian church in chapter 2, they had been held back from their forward momentum. Uh, Their faith had been frustrated due to the philosophies of man, man, self-made religion. And it had an appearance on the surface of of being something that would fix their problem. Just like we thought all the obvious things would fix the problem with our vehicle to get us moving forward, but nothing works. Nothing that we could try would move that vehicle forward. We even tried rocking it back and forth and shifting it into into drive. Nothing worked. Um, and, and that is what the Colossian church almost a picture of what they were encountering. Paul even says at the very end of chapter two, where we left off last week, verse twenty three says, "These philosophies had an appearance of wisdom, but were of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." On the contrary, in reality, they were actually stopping the progress of the Spirit. These philosophies of men that said, you need to do more. You need to put more burdens on yourself. You just need to do better. You need more of the law. Come on, get, get your act together. All the obvious things, were holding them back. We're not working. So we pick up right after that in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. Colossians 3, if you have your Bible, verse 1, Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, past tense, put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So I'm going to sum up this whole passage for you in one sentence. The more you crave Christ... And the things that are truly out of this world, the less you will idolize anything worth less here in this world. I'm going to read that again. The more we crave Christ and the things that are out of this world, the less we will idolize anything worth less here in this world. That is this passage, these verses in one sentence. So you can go home now. We're done. I'm joking. Um, But I wanted to kind of let you know where we're going before we get there so that you know what this is about, what the flow is here. So Paul says something to do. There's an imperative in verse 1. He says, "...if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above." this is a key word to pay attention to in this passage. In fact, if there's any word in this this chapter even to pay attention to, it's this word seek, okay? This word seek can mean to crave or to demand something of someone. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 33. I'm going to read Matthew 6, 32 and 33 to give you a context. It says, Jesus speaking says, For the Gentiles seek um, after all these things. That's actually a different word. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek, same word here. It's a different word um, than verse 32. But he says, but seek or crave first, demand of God first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So that's what Strong's Concordance says, that word kind of expanding on the meaning of it. To seek means to crave something, to long for something. But the reason I read that passage because in Matthew 6 verse 32, the word seek, when Jesus says the Gentiles seek after these things, the things that are of the earth, that's a different word. It also has to do with craving, but it has to do with also clamoring and wishing for something. But there's no no one that those who don't know Christ are seeking these things from. They're just clamoring, they're wishing, they're hoping for things that it's like sand just slipping through their fingers. But this word seek that's used in this passage is to seek something or crave something from someone. Do you get that? It's a difference. To seek something from the source, from the giver of that gift. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, Seek, crave those things that are above. What's above? Who's above? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Martin Luther said, I would rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Because Christ is heaven. And without Christ, there is no heaven. Without Christ, we have no entrance into heaven. Jesus is everything. He's the the hinging point on all of history, all of creation. He is the only source of life. He is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of our lives. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even, Even the evil spirits that try to cause us issues and problems, he's even using that for good. He is the creator, the victor of the universe. And he says, seek those things which are above, where Jesus is, seated right now at the right hand of the Father. There is nothing that satisfies down here. If you don't know that, it's true. You will find it. There is nothing that satisfies. Um, Psalm 63, verse 1 says, David, just pouring out his heart to the Lord, he says, oh God, you are my God. as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, nothing down here. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So Paul says, seek those things which are above But in contrast, he says, don't seek those things. Don't focus on the things that are on the earth. Verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul has been talking in chapter two about things that are on the earth. He went at length to talk about self-made religion, philosophies of man, ideas and mindsets that are of this world. Right, and then in chapter three, he's talking about, uh, as we just read, which we'll get to in a minute, um, earthly things that come out of our mouth, earthly ways in which we act. Right, and Paul says, don't focus on those things, don't strive for those things, don't set your mind or your affections, your your attention, your focus on these things, but on Him, and those things. Now that doesn't mean you've heard the saying. You're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. That's garbage. This actually says to the contrary that the only way to be of any earthly good is to be heavenly-minded. It's exactly what it says. That doesn't mean we sit in our ivory towers and, and our, um, as a monk and, and we don't hang around with people. That's not what it means. But to set our minds upon the reality of the unseen is what changes what we do see. When we when we set our minds on what we cannot see and what is eternal, the eternal comes into the temporal. Do you understand that? God, God allows us who are temporal beings to see a glimpse into what will be and already is eternally in place, firmly in place. Because everything we see is crumbling, including this body, okay? So... Paul doesn't stop there, though. He answers the question, why should we do this? Why should we set our our minds on heavenly things, on things that are above where Christ is seated? How is that possible? To to answer it, it shortly, in a word, it's because there's a new life or a new nature in us. That's what he says here. Because of the new nature that's in us is how we are able to do what's impossible otherwise because of this new life that's been born, because of the life of God who lives in us, that's how we're able to and why we should. What's inside us as Christians is so much more valuable um, because it's Jesus that's in us than anything we can see, touch, feel, right? So he actually gives three different um, realities, if you will, here in these first four verses to draw us attention to to make the point for why it's so important and how it's possible to set our mind, our affections on things above and to hunger for those things. Number one, we've been raised with Christ, past tense. Number two, we've been seated with Christ presently and we will be seen with Christ or appear with him in the future. And that future is coming soon. We've been raised with him past tense. We're seated with him presently. And we will be seen with him soon in the future. We're going to drill into those and dig into those a little bit. So um, first, we've been raised with Christ. We have been raised up. Um, As I was praying this morning, I added this to my notes, actually, um, because I didn't want to miss it. But as I was praying this morning for for the sermon at at my house with my wife, um, I just got this... uh, this picture of, um, I'm trying not to cry, um, this, this was me once, many uh, many years ago, most of my Christian walk, in fact, um, but maybe some of you can relate to this. I feel like many believers walk around in this life under a, a cloud, a cloud uh, that's not real, a, a cloud of almost condemnation, a cloud of, of feeling like they are not new, okay? Um, but in reality, it's just vapor. It's, it's not reality. But, but Paul says, actually, you've been raised up above that cloud, if you will. We've been raised up above that cloud. We are, Ephesians says, we've actually been seated with Christ. He's there, but we're also there somehow, mystically. We're seated with him presently. Um, it says, you have died, past tense. It's actually, if I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is in what's called the aorist tense, which is essentially the past tense. There's no perfect equivalent for it in the English, or so the scholars tell me, <laughs> but uh, it's in the aorist tense, which is past tense. You have died. It's a past tense thing for a believer, um, and, and it's, it's as if we've been decoupled. Our old man has been decoupled from this shell of a body. When you believed in Jesus, the old inward nature got separated and it died. It got killed because it says we've been raised with Christ. You can't be raised from the dead if you haven't died first, right? So when we believed in Jesus, our old nature doesn't feel like it, okay? I'm just saying, but it does say it here. It actually died. There's not a black dog and a white dog that I'm fighting against in, in me. There is only a white dog, okay, inside me. And this is the reality. This is the whole basis upon which Paul argues in Romans, in Colossians, all over the place. He says, on the rea- based on the reality of the fact that you actually have a new nature in you, therefore, act this way. That's the whole point. That's the whole argument. In fact, in Romans 6, he says, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the old body has been brought to nothing. For he who has died, that's us, who have believed in Jesus, has been set free from sin. The Bible says, for freedom, we've been set free, okay? The, the, the word sin and law are used interchangeably in Romans 5, 6, and 7. They're used interchangeably. Um, and so the, the, the law is what we've been set free from, and, and the power of the law, is, is uh, power over us of sin is tied to the law. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So this old man, this old person, this old nature died one time, just like he died one time. That's the picture here. Um, In Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Again, were. Ephesians 2 verse 1 in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So again, past tense, children of wrath. Not anymore, though. It's not both ways. We either... that old. Little guy, little gals, either dead or alive. It's like if you, um, this has happened to some uh, people, so I want to be sensitive to this. But if you uh, are a widow or a widower and you have a, have had a previous spouse, it's that picture of that that previous spouse is is gone, right? And so there's that there's a freedom to marry someone else, okay? Paul paints that exact picture in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. He says, "'Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive.'" But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so Paul explains that analogy, that metaphor now in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, he's using the law of marriage and metaphor here, have died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the freedom that Christ has given, given us. So the we've been raised with Christ and been given new life. Life is that word zoe. You know it if you've been around uh, uh, Philippi for a while. Sam talks about it a lot. The zoe life of God. It's that same word that's used in John 4.14 when Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give out of his inmost beings will flow rivers or torrents of living water. Gushes of living water will come come out of that person. It's that same word zoe life. Um, so Paul speaks of that. That's the first reason, a reality, why we should set our minds on things above, because we've been raised. We actually are above, uh, spiritually speaking, sitting seated with Christ. Um, in Psalm 110, verse 1, it says... Uh, the father speaking to the son, a Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it speaks of the authority. The fact that Christ is seated, of course, at the right hand of God is a picture of his authority. He's finished the work God had for him, and now he's seated on a throne, of dominion, right, as the king, eternal king. It also speaks of God's kindness toward us. Again, I've referenced it a few times already, but in Ephesians 2 verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses trespasses or sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you've been seated with Christ in heaven right now presently so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so check this out. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, Jesus speaking, and I also conquered as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, I have a question. See if you can figure this out. I don't know if I know the answer, but Jesus, in Colossians 1, it says that he's seated at the right hand of God. That's what Psalms 110 says. But Revelation says he sat down with his father on his throne, on his father's throne, and that we're going to be seated with Christ on his throne. How can he be on the father's throne and his throne? I don't know, by the way. But I do wonder, we are his children and I wonder if when Jesus returned to the Father, he's like, come here, son, come up on my, my chair. Come up on my lap. I've missed you. And I just wonder, that, that picture follows the verse where Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice, I'm gonna come in with him and do what? Sit and eat with him. And I just get this picture. Jesus says he, they tried to keep the little children from coming to him. And he, and he said, no, no, let him come. He said he took him up on his lap and he blessed them. And I just wonder if that's what he's speaking of, that, that one day we'll come and sit with him. He's like, I'm, I'm going to bring you up on my lap to be with me. And he's going to show us his kindness in all of this. How is it that we, we, we know we, Right? that we could sit with him on his throne, I mean, that truly is kindness. Like, we don't deserve that. We we really don't. Um, He is the authority. He is the king. We're not. We never will be. But to let us come up with him and sit on his lap or whatever, I don't know how we're going to sit with him, but we get to do it. So we're seated with Christ presently. The third reality that Paul brings out here in these verses is we will be seen with him in the future. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 4, It says, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, right? Things that are above. For the things that are seen are transient or, or passing through, they're not eternal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is not something that everyone understands. It says here that it's, our life is hidden. It's hidden with Christ and God. And, and we pray and we know that in this life, that, that, that life, it bursts out from us at times. But one day, all that we are all that God's made us, is going to be fully revealed. This shell is going to go, and, and it will be obvious to all who we are, right? God, we will see, be seen in all the same glory that Jesus was seen when he rose from the dead. It says, I find it interesting that in the Gospels, that the, that the disciples, they didn't recognize him. And then he would, he would do things and say things, and then they're like, whoa, it is him. There was something that reminded them about him, and then their eyes were opened so he was different somehow but still the same and it'll be the same for us it says that when christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory this is the hope that we have and 1 john chapter 3 says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him the world doesn't understand why we don't walk with them and run with them in the same flood of dissipation as the Bible says, the, the same wickedness, they don't get it. They don't, they don't see what we see. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will and what we will be has not, been, has not appeared. but we know that when He appears, we shall be like the Him, because we shall see Him as He is. The power of seeing Jesus as he is is what will instantly transform us into his image. But in the in the in the meantime he's in the process of working us into more of his image, right? But it says in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, in Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. So what purifies us? What sanctifies us? What makes us more into Jesus's image now? It's the hope of the things that are above. That's why it matters that we set our affections and our minds and our hearts and our cravings on things that are above, because when we do that, when we remember that there's going to be a glory that's going to be revealed, that we as his children, that 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 life that's shrouded now will actually be revealed one day, and that we will actually see him face to face, that which is invisible now, will be visible then, all of that, all of that amazingness, right, in light of all that amazingness, and all that, uh, that greatness, Paul says what he says next. Verse 5, put to death therefore, okay, put to death therefore, in light of all this reality, all this heavenly reality, and the reality that Jesus is there, as you fix your gaze on him. In light of that, therefore, the more you crave the best, Jesus in his kingdom, as I said before, the less, anything less will entice you. The more we remember who we are now, seated with Christ, the more we will walk now like we will be then. If you're alive, don't live like you're dead, right? If we're alive, we shouldn't live like we're dead. How many of you remember the story of Lazarus? John chapter 11. I'm going to tell you that story by way of remembrance. I had to read it again because the, knowing the words that Jesus says are, are so important. He says, John 11 verse 40, Lazarus, Jesus said to her, I think it's Martha he's speaking to, Mary or Martha, I think it's Martha, they did not tell you that you, if you had believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone where Lazarus was dead, in the grave there, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips because he'd been dead. And his face was wrapped with a cloth, because he'd been dead. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a picture of what has happened to us. It's it's time to take off the grave clothes. They stink, and they don't fit us anymore, and they're restrictive. They're, They're not ours. They're they're owned by a body that's dead, a spiritual body that's dead. We're free. Galatians five verse one. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Sadly, the enemy has used man-made philosophies to trick many Christians, deceive many Christians into deceiving even other Christians that they are still dead and to stay in their grave clothes. He says, put to death, therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, what is earthly in you Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So to put to death means to deprive it of its power. So here's the cool thing. If he says, since you're alive, and, and as you set your mind on things above, based on that reality, what will happen? we actually will deprive this shell of its power. The more, if my cravings are so full of God, I will not have room for anything else. If I am so hungry for Him, I will not be hungry for other things the enemy will continue to come and tempt, right? Obviously. But those things will lose their power. They will lose their appeal. The more I eat of the real food, and Jesus is the real bread that came down from heaven, John chapter 6. The more I eat of him, this is the point I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but that is the point. We need to eat of him again and again and again. And then when we're full, we need to eat again and keep eating. And when we're hungry, eat again. I I don't like to hang out with my wife just once. I love to hang out with my wife all the time. And when I'm not with her, I can't get enough of her, and I want to be with her again. I. It's the same with Jesus. I... I mean, there's, when I get distracted with life, there are times in my heart and I say, I'm just, I miss you, Lord. I just tell him, I miss you. Like, I want to be with you. And if you have that hunger, if you have that desire in your heart, though we get distracted, though we sin, if you have that hunger in your heart, then you know Jesus. If you have a hunger for him, then you are his. If you know him, then you know him, and you know what it's like to be with him, and you've tasted of him. And once you've had an amazing steak dinner, McDonald's doesn't sound good anymore, uh, you know? But if, but if I'm filling my my gut with Cheetos all the time, I have a sensation. Do you know that they spend million companies spend millions of dollars to formulate food so that you, so it's to this, what they call, literally, it's the thing, a bliss point. They formulate food in its texture, its taste, the amount of salt and sugar they put in it. They don't want to put too much salt or too much sugar or too little amount of any of those things. They, they said that Cheetos, the puffy Cheetos are like the ideal bliss point food because it tricks your mind into thinking that you're actually not intaking calories so you just could eat forever. Um, it's not really, you know, you're not really getting any nutrients, hardly any, right? But you just can't stop. I mean, it's like, I want more. You know what I'm talking about. How many of you have uh, done better with, with Corona, with your eating habits? And I'm, by the way, before you answer, I'm going to say I've done worse, at least at the beginning. <laughs> when Corona hit, I'm like, okay, I'm at home a lot. Like, look at this food. It just looks so good. Those Cheetos and the chips and like, okay, I'll eat some. And then the next day, I had that yesterday, and I remember what it tastes like. I'm going to have some more. Um, this is all scientific. They all they this is a thing. Um, so thankfully, I've kind of I've pulled out of that nosedive since then. I don't know how many of you can relate to that, but um, that's that's what happens when we when we fill our our souls with junk food, right? It's like I'm trying to you know pour sand into this sponge, but it's really not getting full with it's not getting drenched because it needs water right I need water not sand so um, that's that's the picture God is Jesus is like I am the water that you need so he Paul here he goes into detail about that that the things that are worthless the things that are earthly and to sum it up I could go into detail about what each of these words mean and I studied them out but essentially it's it's sexual sins all sort of sexual sins um, that you can think of um, don't meditate on it too long but uh, like, like all perversion of all sorts is, is covered in this list and the desire that goes with it. And then there's covetousness or actions. These are essentially actions that are earthly. Paul talked in chapter two about uh, earthly thinking. Now he's talking about earthly actions um, that come as a result of forgetting who we are and, and, and Jesus who is in heaven. Um, but he sums it up in this. He says all of it is idolatry. It's essentially cravings for intimacy, worth, love, and and money, and, and things. It's cravings for these things that can never satisfy. But here's what the Bible says. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we already have... Everything we need. There's no need for greed because we have everything we need already in heaven. And then he says in verse 4: even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And the Bible also says in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is the the breadth and length and height and depth? He speaks of the love of Christ. We are fully loved in Christ, and we have everything we need, everything necessary for life and godliness. That's what the Bible says. That's the reality of it. So, if you're when you're tempted, if if you're tempted to engage in sexual things that are are wrong, that are outside of marriage and the design that God had created to seek after the things of this world, simply go back to the reality that's right here in the word and come back to Jesus and be just washed again and reminded of his love that he has and that he's given you everything, all the riches of heaven are yours. Paul goes on to speak of in verse 8, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. So he speaks of now hurtful sins, primarily that we would speak out of our mouth, right? Not just outward actions, uh, but what we would say to one another, hatred, rage, just this, this desire to harm others, lying about and to others. That's all summed up here in this passage, But notice the the tense that he uses over and over again. Verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self, past tense. Verse 7, when you were living in them, and when you once walked, verse 7, hey, but now we get to walk by the Spirit, and we will not carry out the desire of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. It says, when we walk by the Spirit, And we have the Spirit. We will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So that's the answer. We walk by the Spirit. We remember the things of God. We remember we walk with Him. Um, I think of my children, and if you have children, you know what I'm talking about here, but children often act out and do things they shouldn't when they either perceive or in reality feel like they're not loved. When they feel like they don't have enough, right? Um, and, And don't think it's any different for adults. We're all kids in reality. Um, And when we remember, just to drive this point home, when we remember that we have all of God's love, when we're in that place of remembering that He loves us as much as He does and we have everything we need, we won't even be tempted to walk in, in anything else, anything different or anything less than that. So we are all children, children of God. We're alive, new beings in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Therefore, Paul writes in verse 10 this. He says, and have put on the new self. So he shifts from putting on off the old self to putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So if you are alive in Jesus you will live and grow like it. It it will just be a reality because that's what he says. He says, you are, or um, the new self is being renewed in knowledge. But he says, put off, or put on rather. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 6. You guys know the spiritual warfare passage, right? It says, um, uh, put on the full armor of God. It's that same, it's that concept of sinking into God's armor. Um, And one of the pieces of armor is the helmet of salvation. And I taught on this um, a month and a half ago or so. Uh, How can we put on something that's already ours, right? We have salvation. He's speaking to Christians, but he says, put on this helmet of salvation. It's the same concept. These realities are already ours. We have already, past tense, put on, uh, we already have a, a new self, but put it on. In other words, remember, you already have it. It's yours. You have access to it. Just access it. Just go get it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a picture of, of what this is, what's going to happen here. He says, we be, we're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on, the, on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So, translated, this shell has to be swallowed up in life because that is what God has dictated will happen, and because the Son of Life lives in us. Okay, so that will happen. That is a promise, that is a fact, that this old body will be swallowed up. This, this body that's going to die, and everything with it that's of death will go to the grave. But God's new, we will be clothed in this new life, this new body that he has for us, and we will, it, all will see it. Uh, Skipping down to verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that is in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So again, same thing. Based on the reality that you you have a new life that's going to be fully revealed, it hasn't been revealed yet. In light of that, walk like Jesus. Who is our new self supposed to look like? Jesus, our Creator. Colossians 1 says He is the image of the invisible God. But this is also an image of a son or a daughter. We are being more transformed into the image that God originally intended. Jesus is the Son of God. He came as a son, as a baby. In Luke 3.38, you know the, the, the boring genealogy, right? <laughs> At the beginning of the Gospels. Um, it's like a reverse genealogy. It starts with Jesus and goes backwards to the beginning. And it says in verse uh, Luke 3.38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God, okay? This is God's intent that he has created children. This is a child father relationship that we have. That is the image we, he is putting us into. And it's important to note that because it says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. If you know the verse, what's the rest of it say? Be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. We are to imitate God as his children. So think about that. Our children imitate us If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. We are to imitate him. Jesus was the Son of God. We are to imitate Jesus. So, the more we become like him, like God, the more we will look like Jesus, the more we will think like Jesus, the more we will talk like Jesus and do the things that he did when he walked this earth. We're to imitate God as dearly loved children. And it says we're being renewed in knowledge. So, it's not just, um, this speaks of an accurate representation. Of who Jesus is, accuracy or authenticity, okay? So he says you're being renewed, what? In knowledge after the image of its creator. In knowledge, the reality of who God is, is being formed in us. And even though it feels sometimes like we might not be progressing, we might not be coming more like him, we are. If we zoom out, if we're children of God, this is a promise. It says that We are being renewed, but it's invisible, so it's hard, it's easy to miss. Jesus is the ultimate picture of maturity. Ephesians 4.13 says that, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the, mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity looks like looking like the master. That's it. It's that simple. This isn't a complicated thing. This is, he's our model, he's our example, and God is doing this in us. And as a result of that, we get to live like him, which we won't get to today, um, but next week Sam's gonna go into, starting in verse 12, what it looks like to walk, right? Uh, some examples of what it looks like to walk like Jesus walked and to live and think like he thought. So the byproduct of, of a greater craving or seeking of righteous Jesus is a reduction in the desire for evil thinking and living. So as we desire him who is righteous, we will that which is evil, the desires of this world will be less appealing to us. There's nothing more powerful in times of temptation than to remember the greatness of God's love and grace for you. It's important to obviously say, I don't want to do that, but to take that to God and say, God, help me not do that, but in the process of doing that, we come back to him and we spend time with him and we, we, we go to his word. We walk in his steps. We obey him. And in that place, as we're busy doing that, we won't have space or less and less space for the things of this world. I'm gonna say that one more time. There is nothing more powerful in times of temptation than remembering the greatness of God's love and grace for you. It, it, I have heard so many Christian pastors over the years, not in recent years, thankfully, but, but over the years, basically downplay grace. And, and they're like, you can't. You gotta be careful. You teach too much on grace and people are just gonna send it up. Can I read to you Titus chapter 2? verse 11 through 15. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This grace of God has been made available to everyone. What does it do? Verse 12. Titus 2, verse 12 says, the grace of God that's appeared to us is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's exactly what this passage, Colossians 3, is saying. It is the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse John 3, he who hopes thus purifies himself as he is pure, same thing. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, past tense, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So we are to share these things, even though it feels uncomfortable to say, when someone is tempted in sin, and in the middle of that place, it feels weird to say, just remember Jesus loves you. What? What? But that's what we need. When my little five-year-old is acting out, that's my first clue to say, am I showing him enough love? I get the little guy, we go do something, we play together, go to the park, come back. He's a different person. Imagine that. I didn't, I didn't school him on what he needed to do and not do. Maybe later, And there's a time for that. I'm not downplaying that. But there is nothing more powerful to change a person's life than the grace of God. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance means turning. So when you find yourself in a place of temptation, remember that the grace of God has washed away all your sin, past, present, future, and revel in that. And just meditate on it, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you don't feel like you deserve it, just believe it. It might hurt. It might feel contrary, and it probably will feel backwards to think that way when you have just sinned. But remember that because his blood actually was enough. It says when sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It was actually more than enough. His grace overflows beyond and above to cover our sin. Should we continue in sin that grace might abound? Of course not. We know that. That's basic. But remember his grace. And that will draw you to his face. And when you see his face, you will be changed. Because in his face is love for you. Christ is all and in all. Verse 11 says, there is neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcised nor uncircumcised. Christ is all and in you all. He's all. He's all. He's everything. He's it. And he's closer than we recognize. He's not just close. He's inside us. He's not just near. He's here. And if you don't know Jesus, he's near. And he wants to be here too. Because he's all. He's everything. Everything you'll ever want. He's actually what you do want. You might not know it. But he's your dad. And he just wants you to come home. He doesn't want you to run he wants you to come because he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, those who are not free because they have been burdened down with the burdens they put on themselves, ourselves, others. He says, come that you might find freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, First Corinthians says. And we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and being changed from one degree of glory to the other. He is changing us. He is renewing us. He's doing the work. He's doing the work. My hands are moving. I'm doing what he says to do. But he's prepared the works beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. He has put the works in ha- ahead of me before I even was born. And I just get to walk in them. How hard can that be? I make it hard because I forget the reality that of that. But he is the one who's doing the work, really, even though my hands are moving. So back to the story that I shared at the beginning about our broken vehicle that was fixed. And in our frustration, didn't know what was wrong. We had to have it towed to the hotel we were staying at. So the next morning, I got on the phone with my father-in-law, who's a retired mechanic. I know nothing about cars. I mean, I know nothing. I know how to barely change my oil if I had to. I could put gas in them. But we had tried everything that seemed obvious to fix the problem that we had to get moving forward. But we were absolutely stuck. And God doesn't want us to be stuck anymore. He wants us to move forward, and there's only one solution. And it's Him. Just Him. It's not complicated. It's Him. The person of Christ. Him. And my, he, he's such a good father. My father-in-law is great too. So I called my father-in-law, video call, and I'm like, um, I don't know what to do here. He's like, okay, show me under the hood or underneath the, the driver's side. So I'm under, I'm literally on my back and I'm trying to like show him what's all these parts. I didn't know what any of them were. <laughs> and I'm like, what's this one? Why? He's like, move your hand over there to the left, the left, that, no, your other left. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. So he's like, that's the thing that's broken, that, that sensor. I'm like, oh, it's a sensor? He's like, yeah, that sensor. Your brake lights aren't working. Probably, yeah, they're not working. Yep, your cruise control's broken, um, and you can't move out of park. It's all related to this one single sensor. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, r- just a sensor? So good for me, he had the knowledge, <laughs> the expertise, my father-in-law, to fix the problem. And he was just a phone call away. And he walked me through it, and then he texted me. And, and, it, and it actually just it got, it gave me a picture of the, the father, our father. He said, man, you did such a good job. You're a, great, you're a great technician. And I was like, really? No. I said, you're the master technician. I didn't do anything. I just moved my hands and did what you told me to do. And I got in the car, and I'm like, it's in park. And I've been keeping the thing in neutral and doing the parking break because I'm afraid to take it out of neutral because I'm like, I, what if we're going to get stuck if I put it back in park? And he's like, trust me, you're going to be good. It'll work. I'm like, are you sure? Like, are you sure? <laughs> I'm not going to get stuck here and have to call a tow truck again to go from Bakersfield to uh, Grants Pass, Oregon. He's like, trust me. I'm like, okay. So I put it to drive. And park, back and forth, back and forth. And it works. So I had to lean on his understanding in that moment. And it was just a beautiful picture to me that I really didn't do anything. I just did what he told me to do. He had the expertise. He had the knowledge. He had the fix. It was all hidden in him, in his, in his mind. And this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. And he says, just Come. The Proverbs speak of, it's the the glory of kings to seek out a matter. It says that God stores up sound wisdom for the upright to those who search for wisdom as for hidden treasure. He's our treasure, but we got to seek him. We need to hunger for him and come to him because it's in his presence that we get the reality of heaven. Outside of his presence, there's things that I cannot see that I do not understand. If I literally just reading a book alone and not engaging my heart isn't enough the pharisees knew the bible better than anyone and they didn't get it jesus said in matthew chapter 11 thank you father that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children or just kids he said just come i need you I need you. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this problem. I don't know how to move forward from this place. I am under this cloud stuck. And he's like, I got it. Just come. You don't need a complicated strategy. You just need me. Like Martha in Luke 10, 42, Jesus said to to Martha, look at Mary. Just one thing is needed, Martha. Just sit and look at me. Mary was so busy doing a bunch of stuff, trying to fix whatever problem was inside her at the moment. And Mary had all kinds of problems. As you know, she was possessed by demons. She had issues, but she just sat at his feet. She just poured out her love to him. Later at another time, breaking that vial of valuable ointment on his feet. And Judas is like, that's worthless. What are you doing? There's something more valuable for that. And he's like, no. Pouring out your affection on me is all that I require of you and I'll take care of the rest. So maybe you're listening today and you can relate to what it means to know Jesus. And maybe you can't. Maybe you've been to church your whole life and you know about him. But, but when, I, when I explain and talk about this relationship that we have as Christians with Jesus, if you can't relate to that, you can. Because Jesus says that eternal life is knowing him and the Father. It's not knowing about him. Eternal life is not knowing about him. It's knowing him personally. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son, the wrath of God abides upon them. God's Son, Jesus, took the full wrath of God for us in our place. And he says, I will take that for you too. Just come to me so if you know Jesus, great. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have him, and you sense that God's Spirit has been speaking to you, whether you're watching online or here in person, all that it requires is just a decision, a choice to say, I believe, I trust in you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it says. Coming as a little child, it's that simple, and crying out for help, and he will save you, and you will know him, and he will put in you himself a new life, eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the reality of your life. You're the only source of life. We are all always in need of you. And I pray that as we take communion, that we would remember that. Amen.